that you are ruling and reigning and there is a moment coming when you will reign supremely and absolutely and all sin will be addressed. Wow, what an amazing day that's going to be. And we are anticipating that. We want to live in the hope of that and we pray that you'll give us the courage and the confidence that we are a part of a kingdom that will endure forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. God's people said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, instead of starting out with a story, I'm going to start out with explaining some interpretive schools, okay? So that you and you need to understand how different people arrive at different places in the book of Revelation. How many think that might be a little helpful? Because sometimes we get these different ideas and we're going, where are these guys coming from, right? And so there's actually four major schools of interpretation. And I want to give you just a brief synopsis on each one. And then we're going to delve into this chapter. And the first are the historists who believe that the book is outlining the history of the church age to its end with Jesus coming back, okay? And a lot of the people, especially the reformers, and a lot of the great names of the church, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they all believe this, this approach. And it really is an oversight into European history, and they began to interpret all the major European significant events in time as part of fulfilling the book of Revelation. And you know what's interesting about that viewpoint? You have to keep moving the major events to fit different things, okay? So today, this viewpoint is hardly held by most people, all right? It's very diminished in its popularity. And then there is another group called the Preterists, who actually, their viewpoint is beginning to surge a little bit. More people are embracing this viewpoint. And it's simply this, that the book of Revelation was primarily fulfilled in that generation leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and that most of the book was fulfilled then while there's only a little bit of the book that yet needs to be fulfilled at the end. So there's this major fulfillment and there's a huge gap and then there's a little bit at the end. How many follow what I'm saying? And the reason why they come up with this is because when you read a person like Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and he describes, not just biblically, but he's describing because he lived through the fall of Jerusalem. It sounds like a lot of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 is actually happening at that moment. And I think there's some value to their viewpoint. And also, they will argue from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And they focus in on those words, what must soon take place. And they're saying, see, this happened within the generation. And so you have people like Hank Hanegraaff and others who are now espousing this viewpoint. There's a lot of other scholars that are embracing this viewpoint. But it's still not a popular or the most popular view of how revelation is to be understood. Okay? Now, another guy, Steve Craig, who, who is not a, a preterist, he wrote on the four views of revelation. He says this regarding the strength of this viewpoint. He said, the prophecies of revelation... yeah. I've already said it, uh, corresponds with the fall of Jerusalem as recorded by Josephus. However, others will argue that the book wasn't even written then. Some will argue that it was written in 90 AD under the reign of uh, uh, Domitian, the emperor. So there's a lot of debate as to the dating of the book because that affects where your viewpoint is going to be. Okay, I'm not trying to confuse you. We're not... We're not going to go down. I'm not even using those schools, okay? But here's probably the most uh, 
probably the most popular viewpoint, and probably most evangelical Christians hold on to the futuristic viewpoint of the book, and it was made popular by a book by Hal Lindsey. Remember the book? The Late Great Planet Earth. Now, I, got, I became a Christian in the 1975, and this book was really the big popular book at the time, and this is where the church was at. And everybody, we studied this book, and I remember I jokingly said I came to adult Sunday school class. That was before, you know, uh, churches had multiple services. You went to Sunday school, then you went to church afterwards. And literally, I got the, I got the hell scared out of me. That's really, the book is terrifying when you read it through this lens. And so the whole idea is you don't want to be here during the Great Tribulation, right? How many, how many, that's the way you were taught? Just, you know, just raise your hand. How many here? That's, that's basically your understanding of the book of Revelation, okay? Now, here's the, I'm going to just mention, uh, really the idea here is that everything after chapter 3 is the future, and for the most part should be taken literally and only symbolically if it doesn't make sense. And that's the interpretive key to the futuristic school, all right? Uh, the strength of this position is that most of what is being communicated in Revelation has not happened, but the weakness of that viewpoint, uh, and I think viewpoint of that school of thought, is simply if this was true, I mean, John is writing primarily to these people in his time, and they're, like, they don't even have any understanding of what's going to happen after chapter 4 on. So it's hardly as if it's written to them. As a matter of fact, it probably doesn't apply to most people down through the church age, right? It's all the speculation. And a lot of people love this stuff because it's all speculation. And how many know you can really wring out a lot of books on this, this whole approach? And a lot of people have written on it. And how many know when you have a crisis, you know, and something significant's happening, books get churned out, and then later on they end up in the discount, you know? You know, when Babylon doesn't, you know, when the war in Iraq doesn't exactly turn out the way they've prescribed in their book, then the book becomes highly discounted. And so I'm, I'm just saying that in a facetious sort of way, but I'm pointing out that the, 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 the easy part of the book is it's all happening in the future anyways, and nobody can kind of hold you accountable to anything, because, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, right? You're just kind of guessing about what is about to happen. Now, I think the primary weakness of this position is that Jesus can't come until a whole bunch of things happen first. And that kind of seems like it's contradicting what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he said, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, the way the futuristic viewpoint is set up is you're almost expecting him because if these things all start happening, then Jesus has to come next, okay? And so it kind of, you know, there's a little bit of a lack of, of urgency and a watchfulness that Jesus could show up at any time because, listen, there's some things that have to happen first. And that's the weakness, I think, of the futuristic school. So, Pastor... Let me give you the fourth one. The other main interpretive approach is called the spiritual approach. And this is the approach that takes the symbols in the vision and sees the spiritual lessons and principles that can be applied to every age in the church's history. And I, I, I think if you're really smart now, you're figuring out, I've been kind of using this fourth school. I've been more teaching you down that line. How many have kind of got the idea? I've kind of eliminated all this 
what's about to happen stuff with this is the symbols coming from the Old Testament. This is probably what it's meant, and this is how it should be applied right now. And like last Sunday, if you were here, I said I could have preached this sermon in any generation and it would have been relevant. And I have a funny feeling the book was designed to do that. And so I'm not saying that the preterist root viewpoint is totally wrong. I think that there's some things they're saying is correct. I think some of the things that the future school of interpretation is saying is correct. But I tend to lean a little bit more on this side of the equation. And you're going to see why in a minute. So don't write me off right now. Just pay attention. Because you, you end up going down. You have to take a, a school. You have to take you know maybe a combination of them. You have to have some sort of an interpretive key before you can start interpreting. How many know that just makes sense? And what I'm trying to do for all of us is look at these symbols and say, are they found somewhere else? And what I'm finding very fascinating is most of the symbols that John, in the vision John is seeing, most of those symbols are found in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? And I think they help us understand what's happening in the New Testament. And, and I think that's biblical, by the way. The Old Testament is the gospel concealed. The New Testament is the gospel revealed. So a lot of things are happening in the Old Testament. People didn't get it. Now they're restated again in the New Testament context and we begin to understand it in a little better way. So why do I mention these approaches to the book? Because if we are a futurist in our thinking, we may interpret chapter 11 as if a restoration of the temple needs to occur before Jesus comes back. And how many have actually heard this, that a temple has to be built on the Temple Mount site? How many? Come on, let's be honest. How many have heard that? Okay. Now, hang on. Don't throw rocks at me yet, guys. Pay, just follow along with me. And I'm going to try to show you maybe that doesn't need to happen, and these are the reasons why. Okay? Just bear with me. You know, I've been your pastor a long time. I'm not trying to lead you astray. You know, sometimes we get really excited about this book. Let's just look at it, and I'll share some thoughts with you. And at the end of the message, you can walk away going, I don't agree with the pastor. Or you can say, yeah, I think this makes way more sense now. I think I, I'm getting a better understanding of the book. Okay? So follow along. You have to make a decision. How many know that you're responsible to think through what I'm saying? You have to examine what I'm saying and then hang on to what I'm saying and saying, yeah, this is good or that. I don't agree with you there. You're allowed to do that, by the way. How many know that's true? You're supposed to do that. Did you know that? Okay, so I'm going to take all that I know, all of my years of study here, and try to work at explaining this. And this, this is making sense to me. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 11 in verse 1. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers. Now, we need to understand that there's another way of considering the nature of the temple of God. As a matter of fact, let me ask you a question. In the ancient world, what was a temple about? It was the place where God's presence lived. It was where God's presence was, right? And when we look at, you know, Solomon's dedicating the temple, what do we find? The glory of God comes into the temple. Then we have a picture in Ezekiel, chapter 40 and verse 48, where the where Ezekiel has a vision of a temple. Oh, by the way, I should tell you, the temple, the, sec, the, the first temple now was destroyed by the time Ezekiel had that vision. And what he's doing is explaining why the temple was destroyed. He basically shows you that they were committing idolatry. They were worshiping idols in the temple, therefore God destroyed the temple. But uh, uh, Ezekiel is promising them another temple. By the way, did another temple come into existence? And the answer is, yes, it did, under Zerubbabel. And then King Herod expanded it, right? So there's the second temple, okay? 
And Jesus now prophesies in Matthew 24 that that temple will be destroyed. Okay? But Jesus said something very interesting. And I think you and I need to hear what he said. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, notice how these guys have their minds wrapped around a literal understanding of this. What does it say? They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple, you know, Zerubbabel's temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? Question mark? Come on now, Jesus. That's a little bit ridiculous, right? Come on. Because they're thinking physical, literal. But John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus now is spiritualizing the temple. How many see that? I, I think I have good grounds to spiritualize a little bit if Jesus is doing it. But it's not just Jesus that does it. Do you know what happens then? Stephen gets stoned because he tells them there's no need for a temple. As a matter of fact, Paul and Peter go right along and they say things like, "Mm, Do you not know you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So where does Paul think the temple is? He thinks that God's presence now is not necessary to be in a physical, you know, building, he sees God's temple as being inside of us. So let me ask the question, in in Paul's mind, where's the temple? It's the church. He says, uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So there's a sense that God lives in me individually, therefore my body is a temple. But there is a greater sense that the temple of God is understood as the church collectively. And when you and I gather in his name, we are the temple of God. And God's presence is living amongst us. God is here with us. That's why we can make that declaration. You know, if two or three gather in my name, I'm in the midst. Jesus is saying, I'm here. Some of you say, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter how you feel. It's reality. He's here. Sometimes I feel more of God than other times. How many say that's true? That's true of all of our lives, right? Okay. Now, so here, I think we can say that in chapter 11, we're discovering some powerful symbols that helps us come to terms, I think, with what is going on in this chapter. And Daryl Johnson writes in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, he says, in Revelation 11, we have a picture of the church's role in the world. This is what this chapter is about. He says, as noted earlier, this interlude between the sounding of the sixth and seven trumpets answers the question, what are those who are sealed, which means they're protected, to be and do in the crunch, in, in this interlude, in this, in this time, this, this time zone that we're in, okay? He says, answer, there to be witnesses. Now let me ask you a question. What is our primary, one of our primary purposes as Christians is to glorify God, but how do we do that? By being a witness, right? Right, isn't that true? So witness, by the way, is the language of the courtroom. So the word witness implies someone's on trial. And the question is, who is on trial? And the answer is, not us. We're witnesses. How many know witnesses aren't on trial? They're just bringing a witness. So who's on trial? And, you know, a witness, he says the church is not a witness. If we were on trial, we'd be the defendants. 
So we're the witnesses, he says, and we're to give testimony to provide evidence for the other person who's on trial. So who's on trial in this great city? Well, Jesus is on trial. And what do you mean Jesus is on trial? Well, he's claiming to have come into the world to bring another kingdom which transforms and displaces all other kingdoms. Isn't that the problem in our culture today is that Jesus comes along and says he's the only way. Isn't that the issue? He's saying this is the only and right way. Gets everybody upset. How many know it's true? He's saying he's the king and all others are just pretenders. They're just claimants to the throne, but they're not the real king. So for subverting the status quo, for claiming to be able to repair broken humanity, for claiming to be able to set humanity free from the power of evil and sin and death, for claiming to be the center of all things, Jesus calls the temple, his people, to be his witnesses, to give evidence that he's right. Is that powerful? Yes, it is. And now you know why we're getting a little pushback. Because you see, what happens is people either hear that and they respond to it or they reject it. So we're going to look at three elements we learn from this vision in chapter 11 regarding the witness of believers. And I've called it the prevailing witness because we're going to prevail. And the first element we learn from this vision is the power of the witness of the church. And we have a vision here of two humble witnesses with power to overcome the assaults that are hostile. Look at verse 1. So he says, I was given a read, measuring rod, and told, go and measure the temple of God, the altar, and his worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, or three and a half years, or 1,260 days. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, how many are already catching on? This is a lot of symbolism. Anybody see that? Because these guys aren't literally two olive trees. These guys are not literally two lampstands. Okay? They, that represents something. And we're going to find what the interpretive keys are really quickly. And it says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes, down, comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. How many know these people have power? Whoever they are, right? This is how anyone who wants to harm them then must die. Whoa. These witnesses speak, and if somebody's coming to harm them, fire will come from them. Whew. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. How many get a sense that these witnesses have a little power? Anybody get that sense? They got a lot of power, right? So don't mess with these guys, because if you do, you're going to get burnt. Literally, you're going to get burnt, right? The privilege and responsibility of God's people. So who are these witnesses? Well, we've already talked about, you know, this, this temple which really speaks of accountability. To measure a temple speaks of accountability towards God. And there's a couple of things we notice in the command to measure. Who's included and who's excluded? Who's included? The people of God. Who's excluded? The Gentiles, which is another name for the non-believers. Okay, so some people are in, some people are out. Everybody see that? So Leon Moore says, John is saying that the spiritual temple, the church, will be preserved. And we have seen the sealing of the saints already in chapter 7, though it will be subjected to physical oppression as the Gentiles trample it. 
So what we're getting now is this picture that God is going to keep his people even though there's going to be pressure against his people and there's going to be persecution against them. Everybody see that? And if you study the Bible and you study church history, you, you find out that this has been going on now all along. Okay. We know from Daniel's vision the rise and fall of empires. How many remember that? Daniel, you know, the, all these visions from that book, and then there's Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a vision, and he, and, you know, he can't sleep, and so he's trying to figure out what in the world's going on, so he gets his, all of his people that can interpret dreams, but he's really smart. He doesn't want them to come up with any sort of fabricated uh, answer, so he says, tell me the dream, and then, then I'll believe the interpretation. Hey, that's pretty smart on his part. Pretty scary on the interpreter of dreams part. They don't even know what they're going to interpret. They're a little bit at a, you know, odds. And so what does Daniel and his three friends do? They just fast and pray and God reveals to Daniel not only the interpretation, but he even gives them the dream. So he goes up to King Nebuchadnezzar and he goes, you saw this big statue and, or this big tree. Remember there was two dreams similar, you know, the head of gold and, you know, breastplate. You know, so he's going down and he's describing these, you know, the, the figure. And then in another chapter, he has these different pictures of these beasts. Remember that? And they represent different kingdoms. It's very fascinating. You're reading through all of that. So, why is all of this important? Because Daniel interprets the beasts and the images that are dreamed. And so we see here in Daniel chapter 2, in the time of the kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Because remember, after the beast, there's a kingdom that's set up. And it can't be destroyed. It says, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You know what kingdom he's talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God gets established, that kingdom is going to endure forever. How many know that for 2,000 years the church has endured? How many think it's amazing? You know, and there have been rulers and nations and leaders that have tried to exterminate. They've killed Christians. But you know what they can't get rid of? They can't get rid of the church. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus said it. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. How many think, yeah, that's such good news, isn't it? There's no way, he says. Even though the Gentiles are trampling on the holy city, Jesus is talking about this time, you know, of this Jewish, you know, they, they, they are, they're, they're trampling the holy city. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, it says, they will fall by the sword and will be later taken prisoners to the nations. Talking about the Jewish people being you know, dispersed, talking about what's going on. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what's transpiring during the times of the Gentiles is simply the witness of the church. And who are these witnesses? Now, some people think they're just two individuals, okay? Different interpreters. And some of them go, well, that just makes obvious sense. Who's the prophet of fire? Well, Elijah is. And I'll show you that. And then, you know, who's the guy that's, you know, going to have all these plagues? And, you know, that's Moses. So they say it's very simple. Moses and Elijah are going to show back up. But how many know that when, uh, you know, that the Jews had this understanding that before the Messiah would come, that Elijah would come back. Remember that? 
That was from Malachi. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and everyone goes, well, you know, where's John, where's, uh, where's Elijah? And Jesus said, if you understand it correctly, there's John the Baptist. He's the Elijah. In other words, it's the ministry of, it's not the person themselves. And we need to move away from personalities for a minute and recognize what's going on. But, you know, think about Elijah for a minute. This is a really interesting story. I, I, I remember reading this, and I, I never could understand. It took me years to get this story. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9. You know, how many of you remember reading this? Remember, Elijah, and I'll give you the synopsis. The king is not living for God. He's, got, he's become sick. He's pretty bad shape. He sends a messenger to go ask one of the pagan you know, religious priests about their God if he'll recover. And so Elijah has God show him that's what's going on. He says, go intercept that guy and tell the king he's going to die. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. And then he says to him, don't you know there's a true God in heaven and I have the true word? And so this guy comes back to the king. The king says, I just sent you. He says, yeah, I got intercepted. And he goes by this guy. And he says, what did he look like? He goes, oh no, that's Elijah. You know, and Elijah told him he was going to die. And so the king does this. It says, then he sent to Elijah, a captain with his company of 50 men. And the captain went up to Elijah, was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said, Men of God, the king says, come down. And, and Elijah answered the captain, If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and the 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and the 50 men. And I read this story and I go, Whoa, that's intense. How many, that's pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Doesn't just happen one time, you know, it happens twice. And then the third captain comes along and he goes, please, Elijah, don't send fire down, <laughs> right? A hundred people have just died. I don't want to be on your list, you know? God says, you can go down with him. What's going on in that story? You need to understand the ancient mindset. See, if someone sends a curse on you, the idea was if you can kill the messenger, then you've killed the curse. And so the king was actually going to bring Elijah to him so he could kill him. And Elijah knew it. And God goes, that ain't going to happen. I'm going to protect you, my prophet. And so fire came down and killed those guys. Isn't that amazing? How much that's pretty amazing? What's the point of these stories? How does this apply to us, pastors? It's all intriguing. How many are kind of going, this is fascinating. But so what? Well, here's the so what. God has a time for everything. Let me just read down here a little bit. He says here, If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours the enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens. We've already read that. Now, when they had finished their testimony, verse 7, The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. In other words... These guys are going to be invincible until their purposes have been accomplished. Everybody see that? By the way, this is the first introduction to the beast in the entire book. We're already in chapter 11. Does that tell you the book of Revelation is not about the beast? How many see it's about Jesus? Okay, now, let me just go back here and, and say this, that... The ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Moses is that the church has power to witness and not be silenced by our world. That's what you need to hear. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples. Then he said this to them. 
And you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. How in the world are we going to be an effective witness? We're going to be empowered by the Spirit. That's the key. And as long as you and I are called of God and we go out and do what we're supposed to do, we're going to have the power to do it. That's what God is telling us here. So what is the significance of these two witnesses? Well, they're dressed in sackcloth. How many know sackcloth is an expression of mourning? It's a call for repentance. And so these guys are in a state of mourning. So when we go to people and we're telling them, hey, you know what, there's judgment. God's judgment will come if you don't turn. We're not saying that with glee in our our eyes. We're just saying, hey, this is a sad thing. And so there's a sense of brokenness and humility in the witness of God's people. I like what Leon Morrison said. The church is a powerful church only when it's penitent. In other words, it it's, itself is a repentant church. In other words, you and I need to be humble. You and I need to be living a life of continuous repentance. Does anybody understand what that means? It means that you and I are constantly learning to change our minds and humble ourselves before God and continue to walk with uh, a tender heart before Him. A comfortable, easy-minded church has no power to stir the world, stir the world either to salvation or to opposition. See, that's the biggest problem in North America for the most part. You know, what's happening is we're accommodating. We want to accommodate because we don't want to be, you know, seem like we're standing out. Jesus wants us to stand out. He wants us to speak up. He wants us to be courageous. You know, he, he doesn't want us to be intimidated by the powers of darkness. He doesn't want us to be overwhelmed by the system in the world that's trying to push us down. He wants us to be full of the Spirit, standing up, speaking up, but with a humility in our hearts. Does everybody see this? And look what happens here. Notice the, the, the description of these two witnesses in verses 3 and 4. It says, they are two olive trees... And two lampstands. Well, you know what? An olive, the olive represents oil, and oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You know, And you say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, because I think there's a picture in the Old Testament that John's kind of taken from. Because you know, he's got a mind full of Bible imagery. And I think it's easy for God to pull this stuff when you're loaded with that kind of stuff. And in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, we have... Uh, Zachariah and, and God's angel is speaking to Zachariah and he's having a vision. He says, what do you see? He says, I see a solid golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And there are two olive trees by it. Oh, isn't this kind of a clue? This might be a similar idea. And it says one on the right bowl and the other on the left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, and what are these, my Lord? And he said, do you not know that what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, God is saying these, these olive trees are supplying, you know, the, 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 the power to illuminate. And these two witnesses, of course, in the book of Zechariah are the governor Eventually, we find out it's the governor and it's the high priest, Zerubbabel, and it's Joshua. But the point simply being is that these are being fueled by God's oil, God's spirit. He said, it's not by might. It's not by power. See, you and I don't stand against the world in our human strength. You know why we are intimidated and why we are cower and why we say nothing and why you know, people you know, can put us down and we just kind of wilt? You know why it is? Because we need the Spirit. 
And if we're going to operate in our own strength, we're going to falter every single time. Think about, you know, David and Goliath. Remember, David comes on the battle scene. And they've been standing there for 40 days. And they're all quaking because the giant has intimidated them, right? And Saul, the leader, he's, he should be leading them. He's scared. Nobody's doing anything. And David, what is his response? He, he doesn't see the problem. He recognizes the problem it's creating. And he says, this person's blaspheming God. And he says, you come to me with sword and shield, but I come to you in the name of the most high God. You are not fighting little me, David. You are fighting the most high God. And when people are against the most high God, they're going to lose. And you need to know that. Wow, this is good stuff. Yeah, I like it. You know, let me move on to the second point. My points get shorter, thankfully. Is the persecution of the witnesses. What we discover is that from last week, suffering is part of being a faithful witness. Now, most of us go, I don't want to suffer, Pastor. That's the problem. We got to change our attitude. We need to arm our mind, like Peter says, and be prepared to suffer. The moment you say, I'm prepared to suffer, I'm just going to do the will of God, then you can move forward. And do things that you could not normally do before, right? Once you get past the fear, then something powerful begins to happen. Because as long as those Israelite guys were standing on the hillside, they just lived in fear. And I think most Christians are living in fear. Come on, let's be honest. So if we're empowered by the Spirit, God's going to do some powerful things. Now... Number of interesting elements. This is the first time we've said the beast comes into play. And Robert Wall says, On the onslaught of his evil works commences only after the testimony of the two witnesses are finished. Their work is accomplished. Their purpose is done. The limits of evil are established by God. And ultimately, they're going to serve God's purposes. And what he means by that is evil is under God's control. It has defined boundaries. God's reign alone and God alone will finally vanquish all pretenders to the heavenly throne through Christ. Therefore, while the beast makes his destructive power felt, the parameters for the exercise and effect of his evil power are set by God. And he's sovereign. So what does the preaching of, why does the preaching of righteousness torment the ungodly? Why is it that when you live right and you speak right and you do right and you you know, like for in my case, I preach right. Why is that such a threat? Well, the answer is, it makes people feel uncomfortable because they know they're wrong. How many know that? People don't like to be have bad things pointed out, right? They all want to be told they're okay. The faithful preaching of the gospel is never soothing to the impenitent. That's the rebellious, right? So to that, so the, so the removal of the outstanding preacher is commonly a matter of rejoicing for those whose consciences he has troubled. That's Leon Morris. That's why they were rejoicing when these witnesses were finally killed. The whole world was rejoicing. And so the world thinks it's going to suppress Christianity. You don't know that yet, but that's exactly. And even the people in the world don't even know that's the goal. They don't even know they're controlled by a force and power greater than themselves. See, you're either serving God or Satan. You're either full of the spirit of the living God or you're allowing the evil one to control your life. And so the mindset, the worldview that's dominant in our culture is a beastly worldview. It's actually the spirit of the sage. It's against God. It's a state of rebellion. And they are trying to suppress 
the church and the witness of God. That's why anti-Semitism and Christianity are under such great uh, persecution today. And you say, why is that? And I ask myself the question, does my life bring conviction towards others? Are we rejected because we're followers of Christ? When our lights shine, how many know darkness doesn't rejoice? It wants the light turned off, right? That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Wow, is that strong stuff? And you and I are the lampstand. The church is the lampstand. We're shedding the light on what's evil in our world. So while the church suffers setbacks, victory is assured. These guys, you know, are dead. But then look what happens. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They came back to life. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. How many see the resurrection power of God? Hallelujah. This is almost like Ezekiel's vision in chapter 37, those dry bones coming to life. Isn't that amazing? Do you know... This has happened throughout human history, by the way. There have been nations that have gone after the church and tried to extinguish the lamp. And you know what? Just when they think they've killed it, pow, it comes back brighter than ever. How many know that when communism took over China in 1949, Mao Zedong tried to extinguish the lamp. And today there are more Christians in China than there are people living in Canada. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? So he's trying to destroy one million Christians and at the end... You know, he gets burnt because now there's over 50 million Christians. Isn't that awesome? You cannot extinguish the light, folks. It's not going to happen. The victory is assured. But this is what I love. You know what? When the church lays down its life, powerful things begin to happen. It says, then 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. It's a tenth of the city. But I want to show you something. And I've never seen this before. Daryl Johnson points it out. There are many examples in his church history which show us that just when the church appears to be on the verge of extinction, God revives his people. The specific individuals within the church did not come back to life on this planet, but the church does. And then he, then he shares this thought. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, God is telling Isaiah he's going to judge his people. What does he say there? And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. In other words, God's only going to preserve a tenth, right? 90% are going to perish. In Amos, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your, your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. In other words, God's judging them. 90% are going to die, only a tenth are going to be spared. He says, if a hundred go out, you'll only have ten left. Okay? But what's happening in Revelation is a reversal of this. Instead of 90% dying... Only 10% died, and God was glorified. How many are beginning to see? These numbers are just symbolic, folks. See, we're, we're, we're thinking, do you know there's 350,000 people that live in Jerusalem today? See, if we're playing this literal game, we're having some problems with all these numbers. I'm suggesting to you it's more symbolic than we realize. What's really going on here is that what God is doing is flipping this thing. And instead of allowing you know, 90% of the world to die, 
he's, you know, only 10% because God's revealing himself through the church. Oh, I like this. Now, I got two to three minutes and we're going to get to the last point. And you know why? I have to get here. And I'll tell you why. It's too exciting. Because now we have the most powerful expression in the whole Bible. Because what you and I think usually is that this is, the, this is not the end of Revelation, right? We've got all these other chapters. This is actually the end. Chapter 11 is the end. What's going to happen is chapters 12 on are just going to explain in more detail what's going to happen here in this latter part of chapter 11. Listen to what it says, verse 14. The second woe is past, the third woe is coming soon. But the third woe is not a woe. Listen to what happens. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet. When the trumpet sound shall sound. See, we listen to Paul. Can you hear the echoes of Paul? And the trumpet shall sound. What's going to happen? And there were loud voices in heaven that said, The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. What's going on? This is Jesus is coming. This is it right here in chapter 11. Jesus is coming back. And the kingdom of this world that, you know, the kingdom that we're experiencing spiritually is not completely experienced in its fullness. Now it's going to be experienced in its fullness. Now what's about to happen? It says, and the 24 elders who were seated on the throne fell before God on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. But it doesn't say and was to come. That only says that in the first chapter. Why? Because he's now here. Woo! The king is here. Hallelujah. The kingdom has now come in its fullness. I love it. You guys don't get it. (laughs) You need an experience like Handel had. He's writing his oratorio. And he cannot eat. He's so excited. He goes without eating for days. And then he, then you have that. How many have ever heard Handel's Messiah? Come on now. And he shall reign forever and ever. Right? And everybody stands up. Why? Because the king has now come. This is the coronation moment. Hallelujah. What is else to say here? How do you know that, Pastor? It says. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your service, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. Who are those that destroyed the earth? Sin and sickness and death. And boom, he has this amazing vision. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he begins to see these things unfold. And when he gets to this part of the vision, can you imagine he sees heaven exploding in worship? 
He sees the kingdom of God prevailing. He sees the church triumphant, even in spite of its sufferings and its persecutions. The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord. Hallelujah. He is the rightful king. I say it again. He is the rightful king and he shall have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. Are you encouraged this morning, my brothers and sisters? Are you encouraged this morning? I tell you, this kingdom is coming. And it's already come when you open your heart to the king. But it shall come and rule and reign over all the evil and injustice in our world. Let's stand this morning. Hallelujah. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm liking this book. A lot of us have been afraid to open it. It is a blessed book. It is a book that should encourage your heart. It tells you that Jesus is going to win. And all the pomp and pageantry and the false bravado of this culture and all the boasting of humanity is going to come to nothing. Isn't that great? Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I, I tell you, I just want to shout. I get another chance to preach this. I get another chance after that to preach this. Boy, by the time I go to sleep tonight, I will be rejoicing. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Just have every head bowed for a minute. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I was discouraged this morning. Just raise your hand. I was discouraged this morning. Just be honest. I was discouraged. How many here you say, you know, I look at the evil around my world and my heart wants to faint. But I'm telling you, my brother and my sister, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. Next week, I'm going to tell you why it seems like evil is winning. Chapter 12 tells you why evil seems to be winning. But I'll tell you what's happening. Satan knows his time is short. He's doing everything he can in this hour. You got to look past what you see with the natural eye. Now you're getting a vision that John got on the Isle of Patmos. Was John right? Did the church, that little group that seemed to be so persecuted, so small in the first century. Now when we look back 21 centuries later, the church, you know, thousands, millions have come into this kingdom. This kingdom is growing so fast around the world. You know, there are more Christians on our planet than any other group of people on the planet. How many knew that? Do you know that? That's true. It's amazing, the victorious nature of this kingdom. I want to declare to you, it's an eternal kingdom. And it shall endure. Take heart. Take courage. Amen. You know what we need? We need the Spirit. How many say, I need the Spirit? I need the Spirit. I want to be a courageous witness, Pastor. I don't want to be coward. I don't want to be intimidated by the Goliaths of our age. I want to be a David in this generation. Oh, I want to be a person of faith. I want to see the glory and the power of God flow through our lives. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. So I'm going to pray that this congregation would be a David in a, in a world that seems like Goliath is winning. But just remember this. Some, some of us look at it this way. David probably thought, some of them thought he was just too big, too strong. David said, 
He's so big, I can't miss. Right? I got God on my side. He's coming down. This giant is coming down. Whatever that fear is in your life, there's fear in many hearts today. I want to believe with you that fear will come down. That you and I will rise up and go, I got a courage I never had before, Pastor. I got a boldness I never knew. I have a power of the Spirit in my life I've never experienced before. Let's just open our hearts to God. Let's pray for that miracle. This was the miracle I was praying for. That God would fill us with His Spirit today and fill us with courage and boldness. And then I thought, man, we could go down to that park on a Saturday and there'd be hundreds of us there. That's my vision. Hundreds of us there praising and worshiping God. And you know, I believe some people in the city are going to get so upset because they're going to have the lamp shining brightly. See, they say, yeah, you can keep it in your little building, but boy, you take it out here, it exposes darkness. Isn't that what it does? Of course it does. I expect to have a complaint. And I'll say, hey, you guys invited us. You said, come along. See, they think we're going to be intimidated. I go, no, we're not. We're going to be this courageous church full of the Holy Spirit. We need to be a Holy Spirit church. Amen. We need to be courageous witnesses. So, Lord... I pray today you'd fill us. I pray today that you would eradicate fear and intimidation from our hearts, oh God. I pray today that we would be so encouraged that we walk out of here going, wow, I am so excited about God's kingdom. Lord, I just pray that you will fire us up, oh God, and recognize that until our purposes are accomplished, no one can hinder us. No one can harm us until our time is done. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.